so hello good afternoon everybody thank you so much for joining me and wish you guys a very very happy new year so this is the time of year when people make resolutions and so on a lot of these resolutions are about uh, you know we have to eat better we have to take better care of our health and and so on but some fraction of these resolutions are about uh, money we have to take better care of our finances we have to improve the way we invest uh, we have to increase our knowledge of investing things like that um so i thought this might be a good time to do a podcast on financial independence so what wh what exactly is financial independence so i like to think of it as a state of self sufficiency where uh, you have enough money uh, that you and your family uh, can live comfortably for the rest of your lives uh, without needing to work a full time job ever again so this this is sort of my definition of financial independence and it is also the commonly accepted definition this is what makes somebody financially independent they are not uh, dependent they, they may be working at a job and so on but they are not dependent on that job uh, for for the sake of money or for survival or anything like that uh now if your financial goal uh, if it is to be a billionaire or something like that then uh, of course um, not not everybody can become a billionaire and well un unless we go through some period of hyperinflation or something like that uh but i think financial independence uh, at least with a proper process and with a certain amount of uh, uh, luck financial independence is within reach of uh, most people uh, as long as they uh, plan reasonably well and execute reasonably well and have a certain amount a small amount of luck um so i, I shared this uh, story in my thread of this guy uh, his name is uh, ronald reed um so i took the story from uh, uh, morgan housel's book so um this mr reed um when he died uh, he had about 8 million dollars he had built a fortune of 8 million dollars uh, but throughout his life um he he was not employed in any high paying jobs he did not get some windfall he did not win the lottery uh, he did not uh, have uh, he did not suddenly get some uh, very valuable stock options or no, nothing of the sort he was uh, he was an ordinary janitor and uh, uh he he used to uh work at uh, jc penny and uh, um just uh, cleaning floors and and things like that uh, but he followed a very simple playbook and over a long period of time he was able to uh, not just achieve financial independence but uh, achieve so much more uh, he was able to amass a fortune of 8 million dollars which which was then donated uh, when when he died, died. uh so what is the playbook that mr reed and uh, so many others are following that uh, we can use to sort of achieve financial independence so uh it has three steps to it the first thing is uh, starting early uh, the second thing is saving diligently and the third thing is investing responsibly so um, you can think of it as a stool three legged stool these are the three legs 
So saving, investing, and then just the passage of time and the power of compounding. Uh, with a little bit of luck, uh, there is a very, very good chance that uh, this playbook, if followed properly, will help us all reach financial independence. Uh, so the process, uh, at least, is uh, you, you have a certain amount of income and uh, you, you keep your expenses at a reasonably moderate level in relation to your income. Of course, people who have higher incomes can afford to spend more and they will still reach financial independence. People who have smaller incomes, they cannot spend that much more. Um, but, but as long as they keep their expenses in control in relation to their income, uh, there is a good chance that they will be able to reach financial independence. So uh, you spend uh, way less than you make. So I track my uh, savings rate regularly. So uh, I define the savings rate as uh, what, what percentage of my take-home pay uh, am I able to save instead of spend. So take-home pay is uh, basically um, my, my income um, minus whatever taxes have been withheld by my employer. So um, whatever after-tax income hits my bank account, uh, that, that is my take-home pay. And what percentage of that take-home pay am I able to save? So I, I track that percentage on a, on a fairly regular basis. And uh, for, for my family, that, that percentage is about uh, 50 to 60%. It, it varies, of course, from, from month to month and year to year and, and so on. But uh, it, it lies somewhere in the range of 50 to 60%. And I'm, I'm reasonably happy with that um, savings rate. Uh, so what, what happens to these savings? So these savings are not just lying in a checking account earning 0% interest. So uh, almost every dollar of these savings, uh, except for a rainy day fund and things like that, almost every dollar of this savings is invested. Um, so it's invested into, in, in my case, it is invested into stocks um, and, and index funds and things like that. And uh, these investments over time, uh, they, they compound and I track that also. Uh, so, I, so I track uh, what, what our uh, net worth is on a regular basis and, and things like that. Um, so there, is, there are these various rules. Uh, so for example, there is a 4% rule and there's a 3% rule and so on for financial independence. So that is basically uh, how much do we need in assets? How, how large should our portfolio be uh, in order to uh, so, so we can call ourselves financially independent. So for example, uh, if we spend say 50K per year and we are following the 4% rule, uh, the 4% the rule basically says that our expenses should not be more than 4% of our portfolio. So if we are spending 50K, 4% uh, of what is 50K? Um, so it, uh, it turns out that 4% of uh, $1.25 million is 50K. So if you spend 50K per year, then uh, you need a $1.25 million portfolio uh, in order to sustain that. that that's what the 4% rule says. It's, it's not a guarantee. It's not that if you have $1.25 million, you're immediately financially independent and nothing bad will ever happen or any, anything like that. But this is something like a rule of thumb. So um, some, some people consider themselves financially independent if they satisfy the 4% rule. Now there is the 3% rule, which is slightly more conservative. It says, no, no, uh, this 4% rule is a little like ag aggressive. 
So we need, uh, if, if you're spending 50K per year, you actually need uh, 1.33 million. So you, you, you can't spend more than 3% of your portfolio in any year. That's more conservative than the 4% rule. Uh, so there are all these rules that can sort of uh, tell you where you are on, on your path towards financial independence. But each person's uh, situation is different. And we all have to define our own goals. Uh, what exactly does financial independence mean to us? So the 4% rule, the 3% rule, these are yardsticks that can help come up with something like this number. And it doesn't even have to be a number uh, of this form. So for example, if we are uh, reasonably confident of um, making, uh, say, uh, 20K from social security or something like that, then we don't need uh, all the 50K to come from our portfolio. So uh, we may need only, if, if we make 20K from social security, then uh, we, we may need only 30K uh, of, uh, to, to come from our portfolio. So if you follow the 4% rule with, uh, with, with 30K, uh, then um, you, 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 you can consider yourself financially independent if you, if you just have a portfolio of 750K, if you follow the 4% rule, or roughly $1 million if you uh, follow the 3% rule, and, and so on. Or uh, if we own businesses, um, so if, if, uh, if I spend 50K per year, but I own a business that, that produces, say, 40K per year, uh, then I need only 10K from my portfolio. Um, so so uh, each person's situation is different and uh, we all have to decide for ourselves what financial independence means. Um, but the important thing is once, once we have a goal in place, um, we have to set up a system to review periodically uh, what is our current status, uh, what is our income, um, are we saving enough, uh, what, what does our portfolio look like, is it reasonably invested, and uh, is it growing, is it compounding at a reasonable rate? Things like that. We have to uh, set up a system to review, track, and monitor our progress towards this goal. Um, and in this process, we have to uh, manage our risks intelligently. Uh, so for example, if we, if we have a portfolio, but the entire portfolio is invested into a single stock or something like that, um, now uh, that that may not be a very uh, that, that that may not meet our um, uh, meet meet a test for adequate diversification. Um, so if if something happens to that one stock, then uh, if if some um, if that that particular company turns out to be a fraud or something like that, then uh, our entire uh, financial plan, all our goals, everything is in danger. So so we have to um, manage our risks intelligently so that uh, we, we don't lose it all um, uh, after we've made uh, progress towards this goal. Um, so we have to review all these things on a periodic basis. And uh, so that's what this podcast is going to be about. So uh, if you want to ask me questions about uh, my process or processes that have worked for others and, and so on, uh, feel free. Or uh, if you want to share some tips um, so if you've already achieved financial independence or if you're uh, if you made good progress towards financial independence and you want to share some observations with the rest of us, uh, feel free. Uh, so this is uh, something like a free form discussion. So uh, I will start uh, taking questions or uh, even if you don't have a question, if you just have a comment to make about uh, one, one particular aspect of 
reaching financial independence just feel free to uh, come and make that comment uh, the goal here is to uh, help each other uh, become better investors and become better at managing money so if if you can help with that uh, that that is great so i'm i'm going to take the first caller uh, the the caller's name is uh, uh, dividend invest div invest Hi, 10K. Uh, Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, first of all, thanks and uh, appreciate your time. Uh, of course, you're, I don't have to <laughs> reiterate how useful and intelligent your tweets are, your threads are. Yeah. Um, so Thank that's you so great. much. Uh, so I have a couple of questions, uh, if sure. I may. So the first thing is going with the index funds, right? Like you have the S&P 500 has been making headlines. Uh, they're beating all the hedge funds and so on. Uh, so looking at the, let's say the S&P 500 indexes, uh, just the top 10 companies are like over 25 or 30%, uh, you know, uh, that, that's how much it's consuming. So given that, do you feel when we invest in an index fund, it's not really broad-based indexed or like investing. In other words, your dollars are like skewed towards the top 10 holdings. So that's right. first part. So if that is the case, then if we are looking at like rebalancing, of course, the fixed income market is not great either in the sense we know the rates are going to climb higher. So if we start moving towards more and more into like 60-40 allocation, right, with 40 right. bonds, uh, that doesn't seem too appealing either with the interest rates too low. So do Thank you me. have any opinions or thoughts on that? Um, the other part that I would want to just get your opinion is you talked about reviewing, tracking, and monitoring the goals. Uh, do you have any specific tools that you feel uh, helps in a better way. Uh, I know you mentioned about ticker. Are there other tools to monitor the portfolio? Uh, so those are the two things I had. Uh, happy to hear your thoughts on that. Right, absolutely. So the first question was about uh, index funds. And uh, yes, it is true that if you invest in the S&P 500 today, uh, you, you do get a certain amount of concentration. Um, so the top uh, 10 names or the top uh, the top 10 stocks or the top 20 stocks in the S&P 500, uh, they, they make up a, a fairly large percentage of the index. Uh, but the top 10 um, um, or so stocks, they also make up a fairly large percentage of the profits of the uh, uh, the the companies if you if you take all the uh, publicly traded uh, companies in the top 500 um, uh, uh, publicly traded companies in america and figure out uh, what what percentage of the profits belong to the top 10 and what what percentage of the index are there um, I, I don't think there is there's too much of a of a difference um, bet between uh, these two and uh, it's it's broadly in in line so uh, i am not super concerned that the uh, index may itself may be highly concentrated or anything like that. And the businesses we have today uh, in the top 10, uh, they are all exceptional businesses. 
um, if you take Apple or Google or Facebook, or they, they have all kinds of very, very um, powerful characteristics and very, very attractive characteristics. Uh, they are, uh, for the most part, they are reasonably capital light. Uh, they earn very good returns on invested capital. Uh, they are able to uh, market and sell their products across the world. So uh, they, they don't have a, a huge amount of customer concentration or anything like that. Um, so by and large, they are very, very good businesses. Um, so I'm, I'm not super concerned that... Um, uh, the the index is overly concentrated or or anything like that at at this point. So um, I, I was listening to one of the uh, podcasts. I I don't remember which one it was exactly, uh, but it it may have been uh, we we study billionaires. Uh, I I don't know if this is the podcast. And that that guy was um, uh, the 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 guest on that podcast made this very um, sort of poignant point. Which is that? Um, so if you if you imagine a, a rich man in town, okay, and uh, let's let's say this rich man he owns several businesses in town. Say uh, he owns a restaurant, he owns a, a laundromat, he owns a couple of gas stations, he owns um, you know um, maybe a, a convenience store, um, and so on. So so he he's got. Um, you know, five or six businesses like this uh, in a small town. Um, w- would you consider this man diversified or not? Uh, so, so this guy uh, is probably fairly well diversified. He, he's got, uh, say, five or six businesses. They are each producing um, money to add uh, to, to his corpus over time and, and so on. But uh, he owns only six businesses. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't own... Uh, like 500 businesses or, or in any anything of that sort. Um, so uh, we, we would normally consider him reasonably well diversified. And uh, that's the point here. The point is that uh, diversification uh, is, a, th- there's a very, very strong law of diminishing returns to diversification. So uh, if you increase the number of stocks you own from say one to five, uh, you, you get, an enormous amount of diversification. But if you increase the number of stocks from five to 10, uh, the amount of diversification that you get out of that is much smaller. And so there is a law of diminishing returns. And um, so every new company that you add to the portfolio, uh, that is going to uh, contribute less and less to uh, diversify. That's that's how the math of diversification works. So um, you, you should not be overly concerned that uh, the, the top uh, few companies uh, make up uh, such a large percentage of the index, because in any kind of uh, power law setting or uh, any any in, in most kinds of statistical settings, what happens is uh, there are only a few really really good businesses and really really successful businesses. Not every business can be that successful, and those few successful businesses they are going to have an enormous amount of success. And over a period of time, they're going to dominate uh, the, the index. This is quite natural. So that, that is the first uh, point. Uh, the, the second question uh, that you asked uh, had to do with, uh, I think, monitoring the, the tools that uh, I use for monitoring and, and things like that. Uh, well, 
um so i i don't use um any any um I, I use basic things like a text editor and things like that on uh, on my computer. So I just have a simple text file. Uh, it, it's not even an Excel file at this point. So I do some very simple calculations um, uh, each each month, and I have sort of structured my life in such a way that uh, I, I don't need to do anything more complicated uh, to do this uh, review, uh, uh, this periodic review each month. Um, so, for example, a lot of people have a large number of credit cards from different uh, institutions and, and so on. And I used to be having a large number of credit cards as well. Uh, I would try to maximize the number of points that I get and, and so on. Um, but these days I, I use just two credit cards and they are both from uh, Citibank. So if I just go to the Citibank app, it will tell me uh, how much I've, I've spent for the month or, or so on. So. Uh, I don't really use too many tools. Um, uh, my my total review process for uh, I I do something like a monthly review, and uh, just to find out how much uh, I have in uh, 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 what what percentage of my income I've saved and things like that. It it doesn't take very long, um, so I I, uh, I I don't use tools like Ticker or anything like that. Although there are some useful tools. I think uh, yesterday Brian Feroldi had a tweet. Uh, about his process for keeping track. Uh, his is an annual process, I believe, not not a monthly one like mine. Um, and he he has released a few spreadsheets and things like that that he uses uh, to keep track of his finances. So if if you're looking for tools, you may find that uh, useful. But I have I have not used uh, any, anything more complicated than a simple text file on my computer. Oh, thank uh, you. Then, Sure. Yeah. Uh, then, then you had a question about bonds uh, Correct, as well, right. the 60-40 yeah. allocation. Um, well, bonds these days uh, make absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> uh, so so, uh, so some, of, some of the bonds are, uh, in fact, uh, negative interest bonds, and others, uh, they, they yield uh, an interest rate that is far lower than uh, even uh, any, any reasonable estimate of uh, inflation. Um, so, um, Buffett had this wonderful sentence in one of his uh, letters. Um, he says uh, that uh, at these prices, uh, bonds, uh, which are usually marketed as risk-free return, uh, they, they are priced to deliver return-free risk. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I tend to agree with that assessment. So I, I don't have any allocation to bonds, uh, ex except in my uh, 401k and things like that, where uh, th there is a certain amount of automatic rebalancing that, that goes on there. But uh, in, in my personal portfolio or uh, uh, in my family's portfolio, there's uh, zero allocation to bonds because I, I, I don't think um, um, the, the, the interest rates make sense. If, if you just want to beat the performance of a bond uh, over the next several years, uh, th there are lots of companies um, that that pay a, a reasonable dividend and uh, whose dividends can can be reasonably expected to grow uh, in in the future and uh, th there's a very very high chance that they will beat uh, the, these kinds of bonds over time. So um, I I don't have any allocation to bonds. Thank you. I appreciate sure. your time and answering the questions. Yep. Absolutely. So does anyone else want to share a question or any observations they have, any any tips they have for financial independence? 
Okay, uh, Shashi is here. Hi, 10K. Hello. Happy New Year. Oh, thank you. Wish you the same. Uh, so I have uh, a few questions. Um, also, I have a sort of a, a tip, I would say, uh, about my process, what I do. Uh, so what I do is basically I run my uh, finances as a as a company uh, in the sense I this is mainly to learn uh, accounting. So I run right. it as I, I have my own income statement, cash flow and balance sheet. So I just prepare it uh, and every every month I, uh, you know, review it. So it's it's ba it's basically just for my understanding how accounting works. So maybe uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's what I do uh, just for my knowledge. That is one thing. Also, I just wanted to know um, uh, what what are the books that you can recommend uh, to learn accounting? That is one thing. Um, also, what's your strongest uh, argument against indexing? Uh, the reason I'm asking is, uh, for example, S S and P five hundred. Uh, I mean, it typically returns maybe nine to ten percent uh, on a long time horizon, but there are right. times it has returned. Uh, zero percent even after yes. uh, 10 years you know so for yes. a person who doesn't do dollar cost averaging uh, a person who puts a lump sum amount in a particular year uh, I mean in my opinion that is quite risky because you never know even after 20 years it can uh, return zero percent yeah so that's my view I just want to know how what's your take on that thank you uh, right, absolutely. First, let me say that uh, th this is a wonderful idea uh, to treat your own finances as a company and to prepare your own uh, income statement and uh, balance sheet and, and so on. Uh, that That is a, a wonderful idea. It helps you learn the basics of accounting as well. And it uh, drives home some very important financial concepts that you may not appreciate otherwise. So thank thank you very much for that tip. As, uh, to recommend problem is a uh, lot of accounting books are very very dry and uh, so so i've started uh, several accounting books but i haven't finished them <laughs> uh, but there is this one book that uh, that's really good uh, that i would like to recommend it's called uh, the accounting game uh, what, what this book does is uh, through the example of a lemonade stand, um, it, it explains the basic concepts of accounting uh, for somebody who is completely new to the field. And um, it's, it's called the accounting game, basic accounting fresh from the lemonade stand. And uh, it's written by Daryl Mullis and Judith Orloff. Uh, so so this, this is a book uh, that, that I found to be very good about uh, accounting. Um, and yes, uh, about the index fund uh, risk. Yes, you're absolutely right that uh, for a, uh, th there have been uh, periods in the past when the S&P 500 uh, or uh, any um, a, a broad based index of stocks uh, has returned nothing 
over a 10 year or even a 20 year uh, period so there have been periods in history like that and uh, that could happen in the future as well so if if that happens uh, people who follow something like the 4% rule uh, may, may be at risk because uh, the the index uh, it, it uh, well it, it returns nothing for 20 years and uh, more, more than that it it fluctuates a lot so for example if the if you retire during a particular year and the index happens to crash the the very next year or something like that uh that, that is really really uh, bad for you um if if there is a big crash soon after your retirement that's not not great um so even if you followed the 4% rule at the time of retirement uh, after this uh, crash you may be drawing uh, say 6% of your portfolio or something like that the, the next year and uh, th- that's that's not very good um so yes there are all these risks uh, but for a known nothing investor for an investor who uh, does not know how to analyze companies how to pick stocks uh, things like that um, there really isn't much of an alternative other than to hold their uh, money in index funds now um, there is this um, view that if you need some money for 5 years then uh, you should never put it into any kind of stock based investment uh, because nobody knows what's going to happen uh, to stocks in a in a short period of time so uh, you can keep uh, some kind of uh, allocation in in cash or bonds or something like that but uh, as i just said those uh, the, the the returns that you can expect from bonds uh, the the prices are so high the bond prices are so high and the yields are so low that 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 is not an attractive option either so if we go into a period where uh, for the next 20 years the index returns nothing uh, then a lot of us are in trouble and uh, <laughs> I, i don't have a great answer for that uh, but there is one thing that we can um, we can try to do um, that uh, helps uh, diversify us against um, uh, diversify us um, against the index basically Uh, and and that is ownership in uh, businesses that are not publicly traded so if if you start your own business for example uh, or uh, if if you acquire a small uh, business there there are plenty of uh, tutorials and there are plenty of um, online uh, resources about uh, how to find small profitable businesses um, like a simple website um, there there are there are plenty of uh, etsy uh websites that that make say 100k or 50k per year and um th- there are lots of plumbing businesses in town and so so many other small businesses laundromats and things like that uh they have very good cash flows uh they they will not grow uh um very fast or anything like that but they have very good cash flows very reliable cash flows over a very long time and ownership in those those kinds of businesses if you can find a way to own them and take cash out of them um that that will um uh, if if the index happens to go into a tailspin or something like that and if it returns nothing over the next 20 years uh, something like that uh, may be a very attractive alternative this is again uh, diversification so you should have as many sources of income as possible uh, 
um, and uh, this 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 could be one strategy against uh, if if you if you feel that the uh, uh, you want to mitigate the risk associated with an index. I think uh, that was one of Buffett's uh, main strategy uh, in terms of the purchase of seas candies. I mean, it uh, throws out a lot of cash, but uh, the business can't take that uh, additional capital. So he takes it out and uh, you know invests in more profitable businesses. Uh, I uh, think right, absolutely. So Buffett is the king of diversification. So. Uh, you know, so so many people uh, they think you know Buffett runs a very very concentrated book, and uh, if if you look at his portfolio, uh, look look at her, the allocation that he has given to Apple, uh, so it's very very concentrated and and so on. But if you follow Buffett from a very young age onwards, he, he's the king of diversification. Uh, when he was a kid, he used to um, have like eight different businesses that were each producing income for him. He used to have uh, a pinball machine business. He used to deliver newspapers. He used to sell uh, golf balls, and uh, he he would uh, yeah, buy uh, six packs of uh, Coke or something and and sell them uh, uh, sell sell each uh, individually and and so on. He he would have like seven or eight different businesses uh, that mm-hmm. that he's running at any given time. Each of which is producing cash for him. Uh, and that that sort of continued uh, into his philosophy for uh, managing Berkshire Hathaway as well. So he he has so many diverse streams of uh, cash flow coming in from so many different quarters that um, you know even if he were to lose half of them overnight, uh, he still wouldn't uh, he he's still not affected in any any major way. And that that is ideally uh, the 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 best position to be in very very safe very very robust to all kinds of failures yeah thanks thanks Tinke. thank you absolutely all right so next next caller is uh, dusty cookie hey Tinke. Am I audible? Yes, you are. Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. This is very educational. Your uh, threads as well as uh, this call-in uh, session. Uh, regarding the the book suggestion you made, uh, I'm very thankful. I'm going to check it out because uh, I myself try to read many accounting books and uh, I could not get beyond uh, maybe one chapter. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, the. So uh, I have been trying to uh, teach some of these basic concepts to my niece and nephew. They're both uh, like seven and uh, maybe 13, right? So oh, wow. uh, if you have any suggestions which are uh, useful for kids, because if I try to teach them about stocks and they, they don't understand and they don't care. But right. uh, if you find any, uh, if you have any resources for, especially for kids, like you said, uh, with the lemonade exp- example and things like that, Right. Uh, that'll, that'll be very uh, good. Uh, so I don't know about a seven-year-old, um, but for <laughs> a 13-year-old, um, the famous investor Peter Lynch uh, mm-hmm. has actually written a book for kids, um, just explaining to them, you know, what what is a stock and uh, how companies work, how the stock market works. 
um, the, the importance of uh, taking good care of your finances, th- things like that. It is a book that is aimed at kids. And uh, the title of the book is Learn to Earn. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's this book written by Peter Lynch. And um, it's I, I, I think it's a very good, good book. I've, um, uh, I, I have a cousin brother and a cousin sister, and uh, I've, I've given them this book. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a great book. Okay, great. I'll check it out. Thank you very much. Sure. Bye. The next uh, caller is Vinod. Hi, 10K. Uh, can you hear me now? Uh, yes. Okay, wonderful. First of all, uh, thank you for uh, another great session and great topic. And also wish you a happy New Year to you and whoever joined the call and the rest of the audience as well. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. So I have a couple of questions. Probably I will try to ask uh, in, in multiple parts, maybe two or three. Uh, if sure. That, if that is okay for you. Yeah. So first that, one is basically works. the... Yeah. If first one is the school of thought, basically the financial independence, tracking the uh, expenses, saving uh, reasonably uh, well, and also investing it. And this particular school of thought is basically everyone gets it. Uh, I would say most of them in terms of investing in index fund and things like that. So if right. we have some level of uh, optimization, I think the previous caller talked about the diversification aspects in terms of uh, what happens if index has not returns anything uh, for over the period of time. But there is a a thought process, for example, especially you are in accumulation phase. uh, I think the volatility uh, will really help in terms of maybe uh, increasing the return potential because the uh, because of the reactions in the in the indexes, probably you will have an opportunity to accumulate uh, more units, which will basically uh, 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 result a great return over the long period of time and there is a, uh, also there is a risk involved uh, I agree in terms of uh, maybe index not returning the expected even the currently the people are ranging from like seven to nine percentages kind of uh, expectation what they have but in if if you want to maybe optimize further is there is any what is your thought process in terms of international diversification? And also there is a, another camp of people where they're uh, talking about uh, maybe putting uh, some level of uh, your portfolio into the real estate uh, investment trust, right? Uh, right. Or, or maybe the uh, bit of uh, a tilt, value tilt in your, in your portfolio, where basically you uh, increase your exposure towards the value company. Um, uh, basically the value of not done or lost uh, one decade, uh, it has underperformed the growth, right? So right. Uh, is it basically an opportunity where we need to maybe tilt our portfolio towards value and also especially the small companies, not only in US and also maybe um, across emerging market and other developed market as well. Um, I want to hear your thoughts in terms of maybe doing diversification slightly in a different way. Um, not just a traditional bond. Bond. Everybody, everybody agrees. Basically, that might not return, uh, and and maybe and might not be an attractive option actually for a foreseeable period of time. But if there is any alternative investment options like uh, doing little bit of maybe a, a Berkshire or Berkshire exposure to certain stocks, 
or maybe some international diversification or uh, tilt in I, the I didn't catch the, value the last yeah. part of that question oh so, sorry could you just repeat the last few seconds yeah so so basically i want to understand the can you hear me now yes yes so the i want to get your thoughts on the uh, diversification uh, through uh, um maybe tilt in the uh, portfolio through large value companies or small companies and also the the real estate investment will will that right. help us to help will that help us to maybe um de-risk this particular concentrated index and maybe foreseeable period we might not get any reasonable return that we are expecting right right exactly uh so so these are all uh, wonderful questions so the the first question about uh, international exposure so uh, several studies have been done in the past um, so for example there have been studies that have taken uh, the positions of uh, us investors and compared uh, that to the position of uh, uh, japanese investors and it turns out that us investors like to invest predominantly in us companies and japanese investors like to invest predominantly in in japanese companies and uh, so there is this bias it's called uh, I, i believe it's it's called the home ground bias or something like that where uh, people tend to buy stocks mostly in the, con- uh, the, the companies uh, who, who operate mostly in their own countries um and uh, there there's no really good reason for this bias especially today when you can own a, a very broad based index um, uh, that 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 includes stocks from all the countries in the world basically uh, so uh, there's there's no uh, uh, very good reason for only preferring us stocks or, or anything like that um, but even if you own only us stocks um you you may still be getting an enormous amount of uh, diversification on a global scale and the reason for that is that if you take all the major us companies uh, if if you take something like coca cola or starbucks or um, apple or google uh, they they do an enormous amount of business outside the us so if you if you take their revenues uh, um, so so starbucks for example um they they have uh, enormous expansion plans in china a very very significant uh, amount of their future growth uh, is probably going to come from china and uh, they they have a big presence in uh, uh, in in asia pacific and and th- th- those kinds of regions and uh, so they um they, they make a very large percentage of their uh, revenue uh, from outside the us and uh, so when you buy a company like starbucks you are uh, e- even though it's a us company and you bought it on a us stock exchange uh, you are getting a certain amount of international diversification uh, just because starbucks has operations all over the world uh, so that that is an important point uh, that is often underappreciated so don't just look at uh, whether you own us stocks or international stocks look at the underlying business and how much of the business is done uh, in the us versus how much of the business is done internationally uh, then the the second question was about uh, value uh, versus growth uh, now yes you are absolutely right value has uh, has been underperforming growth uh, for a long time um, but there is a, 
a problem in the way uh, we define these terms, value and, and growth. So Buffett likes to say that uh, growth is always a component in the calculation of value. And I uh, tend to agree with him on that. Um, so when you, when you look at an index, a, a value index, an index of value stocks, so-called, um, now, how are these stocks selected? So what, what is a value stock and what is not a value stock? Um, usually the criteria for classifying something as a value stock has to do some, with something like price to book or price to earnings or some, something like that. So if you, if you take a stock and it has a low price to book, um, then it's a value stock. Or if it has a low price to earnings ratio, then it's, it's, a, it's considered a, a value stock and it is put into a value index. Uh, now, anybody who knows the basics of valuation uh, will understand that this is not at all a perfect test. So when Ben Graham was developing these uh, sort of indicators of value, uh, they worked really, really well uh, for, for his time. But if you, if you look at businesses today, um, uh, you know, if you, if you can buy a business as one, at one time's book, for example, uh, there's a very, very high chance that it's a terrible business. Uh, so, so if you look at the universe of all the businesses that are trading at one time's book, uh, I'm sure there are uh, several uh, good bargains in that bin, but uh, chances are most of the businesses in that bin are, are going to be terrible businesses. Uh, so uh, that, that may be an important reason why value has uh, underperformed growth, uh, simply because these uh, screening criteria based on uh, price to earnings or price to book they, they may systematically screen for bad businesses instead of screening for good businesses at attractive prices. Uh, so so that, that, that is a problem. So um, in, instead of looking at uh, just whether a business is a value business or a growth business, uh, it's important to try and understand uh, whether it's a high quality business or a low quality business and how much of its value comes from future growth prospects and how much of the value comes from current earnings and current assets and current cash flows and, and things like that. That is a more intelligent way to think about uh, value and growth. Um, then you, you also asked about uh, real estate investment trusts and um, yep. uh, REITs and things like that. Uh, now, now, it is true that there are uh, some REITs that have been very, very good investments over the years. So um, uh, everybody's favorite example of a REIT uh, that, that has, I, I think it has become a hundred bagger uh, is this company called AMT, uh, American Tower Company. So uh, what they basically do is they, they, uh, they own these uh, cell towers and then they lease these cell towers to cell phone companies like uh, Verizon and T-Mobile and, and so on. And uh, uh, they've been able to, over the years, they've been a, able to acquire a large number of these towers at a very low uh, or very very good prices and then um, monetize them uh, by signing contracts with these telecom providers. And that has been a very, very lucrative business for them over the years. Um, so uh, real estate investment trusts, they engage in all kinds of different businesses. It's not just uh, 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 what we think of as, as a real estate uh, land or apartment buildings or uh, anything like that. So American Tower is an example of a real estate investment trust, but what they really do is these cell phone towers. Then there are other uh, REITs that focus purely on uh, data centers and things like that. 
Um, then I believe there are a, a, a few reads. So, for example, that I, I, um, there, there are a few reads. I think uh, Lamar is an example of a read. I, I'm not sure if Lamar is a read or not, but their their business is basically uh, to buy up these uh, advertising billboards that you see on the road, and then uh, uh, make make money off of that by uh, allowing uh, companies to advertise on the billboards, basically. So within the REIT universe, uh, there are uh, a large number of different kinds of businesses. Uh, so um, th- the only common thing is that uh, they take some uh, uh, real estate asset and try to monetize it. Uh, so it, it could be a cell phone tower, it could be a billboard, it could be a data center, or it could be just an apartment building and, and so on. So uh, what is really important is to uh, get into the uh, particular REIT that you are interested in, uh, read their financial statements, uh, figure out, uh, you know, at what prices they are acquiring these assets, uh, whether their uh, uh, debt levels make sense, because uh, REITs, uh, by law, they are required to distribute 90% of their earnings uh, to shareholders each year. And so uh, they don't have too many reinvestment opportunities. And if they want to reinvest back into the business, one of the ways they do that is by taking on a lot of debt to buy these uh, assets. And uh, so uh, if uh, obviously when you have businesses that have a lot of debt, uh, there are risks associated with that debt. So with REITs, you have to be particularly careful that uh, the cash flows from these uh, assets are reasonably stable and so on, and that uh, there's no risk of defaulting on the debt or something like that. Um, so there are all these uh, different parameters that you have to consider. So uh, I don't know if investing in REITs, um, just a, an index of REITs is a good idea or not. Uh, I'm I'm an active investor. So before uh, looking at any uh, investment, I try to understand the cash flows of the underlying company and uh, if those cash flows make sense, then sure, a REIT could be a, a very, very attractive uh, investment opportunity. But of course, on, only some REITs are attractive investment opportunities. Others have just too much of debt and things like that. And uh, so that, that may not be a very good uh, risk reward uh, proposition. That, does that answer the question? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Much appreciated. And uh, sure. the just to follow up, me the first question the what's your view on this uh, small cap or small value exposure uh, assuming if you are not uh, doing the uh, total stock market index say if i'm if you want to use only the s p 500 index fund and if you want to have a exposure to small cap and how do you see, uh, view this uh, approach? Uh, right so the way i have exposure to small caps is i i I've selected a few small caps and I've invested in them in in my portfolio. Um, mm. So, um, well, uh, that that is. Uh, do you know what the definition of a of a small cap is? Because if, to to some people, uh, anything less than one billion dollar market cap is a small cap. Uh, but if you talk to others, uh, one one billion is also too much. They they want yeah. something uh, in the range of hundred million or two hundred million, some, something like that. Uh, so um, I, I, uh, I mean, to, to me, stocks that are uh, un- under one billion or two billion, even um, I, I, I'm comfortable calling them small caps. And uh, well, so uh, I, 
I invest in individual stocks. I, I don't have any views on whether a broad-based index of such small cap companies is going to do well over time or not. Mm. Uh, I, I like to look at the individual company, uh, the cash flows and so on. So with, with small caps, there are uh, a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, so uh, sure. uh, a large number of uh, small cap businesses, they, they don't really pan out uh, in the end. So if you're uh, good at selecting small cap companies, uh, some of those companies, there are definitely gems out there. And uh, there, there are people like uh, Ian Kessel, whom you can follow. Uh, he's, he's a very good, uh, um, uh, he, he has very good thoughts about small cap investing and, and so on. Uh, but I, I don't know if buying an index of small caps is a good idea or not. I, I generally like to understand uh, the, the companies I own uh, at, at a reasonable level of detail. So it's, it's, it's not an option for me, but it, it could be a, a good option if you want to get uh, just exposure to the, to the space. Um, but for, for me, I, I, I really like to understand the individual company in, in detail and its business before investing in it. Sure. And I have one more question. Uh, sure. Uh, can I go? Yeah. So uh, assume like uh, uh, some one of your friend has approached you uh, where he is willing to put a couple of hours every week. Right. And right. he also understands uh, the the he wanted to get the financial independence as quickly as possible. Uh, uh, basically, he decides a strategy to invest 60, 70 percentage of them in the traditional investment options like index funds maybe to other couple of other uh, options that we discussed uh, in this call, exposure to the real estate fund and things like that. And remaining 20, 30% he wanted to focus on blue chip companies, right? So the blue chip companies, the the return expectation is like 12 to 15%. Uh, The traditional index might be ranging from seven to nine. He was trying to, he is willing to put his extra hours to get to that mark, like 12 to 15%. Just, just again, it's a hope. It might not happen, but he is basically trying to, his universe is basically trying to select a blue chip companies. And uh, based on your understanding, how much, uh, what should be his approach in terms of, because uh, the, uh, buying a blue chip company at a regular uh, monthly basis, um, it, it might uh, say, for example, buying a Berkshire, we would not hesitate to buy Berkshire, whether uh, the amount of money that we are going to spend and also time we are going to spend, um, the valuation justification and things like that. What happens if I just buy a set, set of uh, blue chip companies, which is basically has a good lock of potential and keep buying it a month on month basis that eventually might average out uh, over the period of time, even if there is a valuation concerns. Uh, if if some, some of the thought has been shared by your friend, a scenario like this, how do you uh, uh, share your thoughts or maybe uh, help him in the financial uh, independence journey. Uh, right. So just to clarify the question, this uh, uh, two hours a week that he wants to spend, uh, is it to be, does he want to spend this time researching blue chip stocks or yes. how exactly? Yes. Okay. So, so basically uh, the universe. So basically if I, if, if we can list, uh, maybe each sec- select each sector and then we know who is the top performer in that particular sector and then maybe follow that company trying to understand the income statement 
uh, it's right. not just blankly buying that company and uh, understanding the stock price is just one dimension and what exactly the the business is trying to do how it is trying to get the money and what is the business model and how it produces the uh, the cash flow and things like that so right. that 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 learning is a process that might take a couple of years but uh, if you start if you have a, a fixed amount of money that is being generated from your primary income uh, investing in a in a set of blue chip companies um, how do you see this particular thought because you in one of your talk you also mentioned uh, over the period of time how much math you need to learn right uh, for example the i still have that particular slide uh, that you presented uh, in terms of how much math we need to know there is there is uh, after so, some point in time basically uh, 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 your uh, basically the math that you need might not add any value to your investment and similar approach even though we try to value and understand the companies some point in time either the valuation will not allow us to buy that company at all or it might uh, if you try to do a dollar cast of averaging in a set of uh, blue chip companies you might uh, reasonably uh, uh, have a fair chances of getting fat fair prices maybe at least uh, three or four times in your uh, in your every 10 or 15 attempts if if that works uh right right well <laughs> so uh yes it is true that uh, if you want to be an active investor you you need to know a certain amount of math and uh, so the math uh, of investing uh, large parts of this math are fairly simple uh, it's just the math of compounding if you know a little bit about uh, how exponential curves work and how how compounding works uh, that that itself is a large amount of math then if you can do a certain amount of math on uh, say tax deferred compounding or uh, if you have a simple model for a company that earns a certain return on capital uh, uh, how how do you predict the future of this uh, company and and basic simple math models uh, that can go a long way in helping you understand the fundamentals of uh, investing counted cash flow uh, model or something like that i would first encourage him to uh, study the basic concepts and try to understand the basic mathematical principles like like this uh, but assuming that he has already done that and he wants to now spend some time doing uh, uh, research into blue chip companies uh, so so first you have to sort of define for yourself what a blue chip company is uh, so Uh, for example um, I, i think a lot of people will consider uh, starbucks uh, a blue chip company so N- nike might be a blue chip company to a lot of people um, and uh, if if you look at history um, if if you take what were the uh, top 50 uh, companies in the world um, say 50 years ago versus the top 50 companies in the world now uh now many of the companies that were on the list 50 years ago uh, they are not on the list today and uh, so a company that was a blue chip company 50 years ago uh, may not be a blue chip company today uh, mm-hmm. so at at one point in time kodak was a was a blue chip company uh, and now uh, where, where is kodak 
uh, Xerox was a was a blue chip company because the reasoning went that uh, Xerox has such a such a great business. Uh, you know, ev- every single office in America is going to need a photocopier, and uh, Xerox is basically going to be uh, supplying these photocopiers uh, for for a very 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 long time. And so nothing bad can ever happen to this company. So it's a blue chip company. Uh, but that's not exactly the way history played out. So uh, even blue chip companies have risks over long periods of time. Um, but the thing is, uh, so so every every company has to die at some point. That uh, in in the history of time, there has been no no company without death. Uh, but the hope is that if you own these blue chip stocks and blue, blue chip companies. Uh, they are making enormous amounts of cash and they don't have ways to reinvest all of this cash back into their own operations. So yes, they're eventually going to die, but between now and when they die, they will return so much cash back to their owners that it it could be more than uh, the the price that you're paying for these companies today. So that that is basically the hope when you buy uh, a, a blue chip company. And of course, for some companies, this hope is going to bear out. And for other companies, their uh, business models are going to be, uh, the, their moats are going to be breached by competition and, and so on. Um, so it's it's very important to sort of try and understand um, how, how strong a particular company is, how strong uh, its uh, moat is. What, what kinds of competitive advantages does it have in the marketplace? And are these advantages going to uh, last in the future or not? And uh, th- this is one of Buffett's uh, greatest uh, strengths. So he, he found this uh, a couple of blue chip companies, uh, American Express and Coca-Cola. And he has been owning them for basically decades on end. Uh, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't changed uh, the allocation or uh, done, done anything. He's just holding these stocks for decades. And every year, these companies pay him a very big part of his purchase price back in dividends. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, the, this guy called Dividend Growth Investor, uh, if, every time Coca-Cola pays out a dividend, uh, this guy tweets, saying, uh, today Warren Buffett got a check for so much from Coca-Cola and his total purchase price was only so much. And uh, so, yes, uh, so if you can, um, you know, dollar cost average or uh, or just buy a blue chip company at a reasonable price and hold on to it for a long time, uh, it can be a fabulous investment. It can give you, um, uh, it, it can give you, a, say, 30, 40% of your purchase price can come back to you as dividends each year after after a long time. Um, so they can be very good investments, but they can also be companies like Kodak where uh, they, they just uh, go away and they haven't returned uh, uh, enough cash back to you. So what you've done is you've dollar cost averaged into a blue chip company that has then gone out of business. So there are risks as well. And um, in any kind of investing um, has these risks. And um, you, you have to understand the the fundamentals of the company in question, and you have to do research on it, just like every other company, um, while while buying blue chip companies as well. Does does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Sure. Thank you. Sure. 
the the next question is from uh, uh, Jimmy. Hi, thank you for uh, having me. I had two sure. questions. One quick one. Um, you mentioned earlier there was a uh, finance. Uh, I forget the name. I wanted. I didn't catch the name of the person who said was posting um, some uh, Excel spreadsheets and other tools for using to manage your tools. Could you repeat the name of that so I could find that? Brian Feroldi. Uh, Brian B R I A N Brian Feroldi F E R O L D I. Great, thank you. Um, the, the second question I had, um, thinking about uh, financial independence from kind of the other side, is how do you think about, you know, managing debt or using debt strategically, perhaps, in, in managing your finances on your path to financial independence? I wonder if you had any thoughts on that topic. Um, right. So this is a personal debt, right? Uh, you're, you're talking about the debt that um, an, an individual takes out, not not really a debt that that a company takes out, right? Right, exactly. Like you know, long term debt maybe like houses, um, medium term debt maybe like you know cars or things like that, and then short term debt like you know financing purchases and things like that. Right. Um, so I have a very simple rule for uh, uh, short term purchases. So that is basically don't don't take out debt buy short-term things. So, so if you cannot pay for short-term things uh, outright, um, then it's probably not a good idea to say take on debt to buy an iPad or something like that. Uh, because these are uh, usually all, all, all these kinds of purchases, these uh, short-term purchases which are bought through debt, uh, they, they are going to depreciate. So you, you buy Say, say you, you borrow $1,000 to buy an iPad today or something like that. Um, if, if you want to sell this iPad, uh, to, uh, say, say six months down the line or even one, uh, two months down the line, you, you will get nowhere near the price you paid for it. Um, so it, the, these kinds of assets, they, they depreciate very quickly. And if you cannot buy them outright, I, I would say don't, don't take on debt to, to buy them. So in, in general, I don't like to take on debt to buy a depreciating asset. Um, now, there, there are some exceptions to this rule. So for example, uh, a few years ago, I, I took out uh, debt to buy my uh, car. And uh, that was mainly for financial engineering reasons. Uh, so the debt was available at 1.5% uh, uh, per year interest or something like that. Very, very low rate of interest. And I did have money to buy the car. Uh, and anytime I wanted, I could pay off this debt in full. But uh, I had better uses for that money. I, I could, say, invest in Berkshire or something like that and get a 12% return instead of buying this car. So, so if I have an opportunity to buy a car uh, using something like a 1.5% interest loan, and I have other investment opportunities where I can earn 10%, and anytime I want, I can just write a single check and pay off this debt in full, then uh, in, in my mind, that's not really debt because you, you can pay it off anytime you want. It's just that you're trying to take advantage of a low interest rate or some attractive terms and, and so on. That's not really debt in my mind. If you can, anytime you want, you can just pay it off in full. Um, so that, that sort of thing might be okay. Um, and the last category of debt is a really long-term debt, uh, something like a mortgage. Um, there, 
um, it, it, you know, the rates being what, what they are today, uh, ra- uh, rates are uh, very, very attractive. So if you, uh, if you want to take out debt to, to buy a house, uh, that, that is, uh, there have probably not been very many periods in, in history where you could get such attractive terms. Um, so for example, um, pe- people I know, they, they, they have managed to get a um, 2.5% 30-year uh, fixed rate mortgage. And uh, so, so somebody is giving them money for, uh, for 30 years at 2.5% interest. And you know, we, we expect inflation to be 2%. The Fed's inflation target is 2% and they're now talking about raising it and, and so on. So um, if you can get debt on such attractive terms, uh, you should definitely look at it seriously. But at the same time, any debt comes with obligations. Um, so you you have uh, cash flows that are required. So if you if you take out say um, a, a 500k loan, uh, you, you may have a certain monthly payment over the next 30 years, and you have to be very very confident that you will be able to meet those uh, monthly payments. Uh, because if if you've paid for 20 years and then you're not able to meet those monthly payments after that. Uh, you, you can lose your house. And uh, th- that is not a position that uh, I would wish on my worst enemy. Uh, so uh, w- when I first came to this country, uh, I came to the US in 2009 and uh, I-, I would walk down uh, the streets of California. I, I came to California and um, almost um, like one one in six houses or one in seven houses would have a foreclosure sign on on the front front uh, front yard, uh, saying this this house has been foreclosed, and uh, that that is a such a sad thing uh, to take out debt and then not be able to pay it and then lose your house. Um, so you, you should when you take out debt, you should be extremely confident that your sources of income and cash flows and assets that you have. Uh, should be more than enough to be able to make any commitment that comes with the debt. So if you're not sure of that, it's better not to take the debt at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I wonder, does it follow up if you had rules of thumb that you use to manage for, you know, managing your debt versus your cash flow to to have such a relative margin of safety and continue to you know make your long-term investments as well? How do you How do you think about allocating you know, money in your uh, personal finance. Uh, right. So, um, if, if I took out a, a mortgage uh, today to uh, to buy a house, uh, I would want my income uh, from from various sources uh, after tax income to be at least uh, two and a half to three times uh, the mortgage. Uh, if if I uh, if I cannot uh, assure that, or if, if I'm not confident of maintaining that state for a long time, uh, I, I will I will look at a cheaper house or something like that. I, I will not take that much of a mortgage. So I, I, I'm comfortable taking on uh, debt uh, when I make say two and a half or three times the the uh, the amount that I need to pay to the to the mortgage company each month. Uh, now, of course, that also depends on what other expenses I have. Uh, 
so if I if I have big other expenses, uh, like I'm I'm at the same time I'm paying paying off an educational loan or something like that, then then the the calculations will will change, of course. Uh, but the the basic idea is uh, um, you, you get a certain amount of after tax income, and uh, after uh, all your expenses, uh, you should have more than enough to to pay off the mortgage uh, each month. So so that that's the basic. Uh, criteria for each person it's it's different the amount of debt that they can handle and the amount of debt that they are psychologically comfortable with um, the the second thing is how much do you have in assets so there are a lot of people who uh, who may already uh, be financially independent and uh, they they may be retired in life so so these kinds of people they, they may not have much in the way of income and cash flows but they have an enormous amount of assets so uh, they may still decide to take on debt, but they can they can just write a single check and pay off the the entire debt any any time they choose. So for people like this, uh, even if they don't have monthly income or monthly cash flows, uh, the making the monthly mortgage payment or something like that, that that's not a problem uh, because they they will just sell off a small uh, percentage of their assets uh, each each year or each month. To, to make these payments and uh, so so that may also be uh, another factor to consider not not just the cash flows that you're getting but also uh, the assets that you have that you can sell off uh, little by little to to pay off the debt great thank you very much i appreciate that happy oh absolutely oh and and just one one more thing um, so avoid uh, credit card debt at all cost. So any, anything that has a very, very high APR uh, uh, should, should be uh, assiduously avoided. Uh, I, I think mo most people realize this, but uh, I mean, every every year when I look at the amount of credit card debt in the in the US, I'm just shocked that there are so many people who who borrowed so much of money and, and they are paying something like a 20% APR. Uh, you know, if, if you're paying 20% interest uh, on, on your loans, it, it's very, very hard to come out of that and become financially independent. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll take the next question. It's it's from uh, Sid. Uh, hello, 10K. Uh, it's great to be able to learn from you. You are one of the best teachers that I've ever come across. So like kudos to you for producing these threads. Oh, you're, uh, you're too kind. Thank you so much. Yeah. And my question is like, when you analyze stocks, like what are some red flags that you look at? And like, how do you go about identifying these red flags? Uh, that, that That's a good question. So, um, well, there are there are a large number of different kinds of red flags. So, for example, there is this entire book written by this guy called uh, Howard Schillett, and uh, he he uh, the, the 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 title of the book is uh, fi Financial Shenanigans, and uh, there what he does is uh, his, his whole um, uh, book is about how how to identify companies that may be committing uh, fraud or maybe overstating revenue or overstating profits on their balance sheet and show, uh, uh, on, the, on their income statements and, and overstating assets on the balance sheet and, and so on. Uh, so 
that that these are obviously very very serious uh, red flags and i i recommend everybody to sort of uh, read this book and uh, learn more about uh, how uh, how various companies uh, what kinds of uh, strategies they use to, uh, uh, to 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 do this kind of uh, false reporting of uh, financial numbers um then there are some uh, uh, softer uh, red flags it, it's not really fraud or anything like that but um, it it's you you still don't feel comfortable when you see that in a in a company's uh, 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 annual report or something like that so uh, one one big red flag is uh, related party transactions so when, whenever you see related party transactions uh, so, so related party transactions is basically the company um uh, uh, leasing space from the ceo of the company or some something like that 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 would be a related party transaction where uh, officers and executives of the company they sell services to the company itself uh, that that type of deal and uh, that that is a very big red flag to me so there there may be nothing in it i mean it may be a perfectly honest uh kind of transaction the ceo may have a company that does a particular thing and this this company may uh may have engaged that company to do something for it it's it's it, it might be a straight up business transaction but uh it's very unsettling uh to to see that uh because there is an enormous amount of potential for for abuse um so 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 that that is a red flag for me um the the other kind of red flag uh is uh, companies that pay their executives a ridiculous amount of uh, stock based compensation and and things like that they dilute shareholders to a very large extent uh, so some some companies they they pay uh, senior executives and others so much in stock based compensation that the shares outstanding of the company they they grow at something like 5% a year so each year they are uh, giving away 5% of the company to senior uh, people and uh, unless these senior people are adding enormous amount of value something like that would would be a red flag uh, so so executive compensation pra- practices if if they are too generous or uh, if the hurdles are too low so so some uh, a company that may be growing at 20% per year for example uh may may give its uh, ceo an enormous bonus if next year uh, it grows above 10% so so uh, i mean the the company if, if the ceo does absolutely nothing the company will grow at 20% so so what what exactly is this bonus for uh, the, the uh, you know the, 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 the 10% is a is a very very low hurdle in in this particular case things like that are uh, red flags to me uh, the the other kind of red flag is uh, uh, customer concentration so um, if uh, a big part of the company's business uh, if if it comes from say one or two key customers uh, then uh, i generally don't like to uh, take that risk because uh, one uh, the, these uh, if if one key customer leaves then the company could be in major trouble and two uh, if a big part of your business comes from that one customer then uh, that customer probably has a lot of power to negotiate with you and uh, get the best possible deal for themselves uh, 
and that there may be a certain amount of uh, zero sumness here so the best possible deal for that customer may be the worst possible deal for the company and uh, so so that that could be a, a potential red flag so so there are all these uh, little things that i try and look for when i'm studying a company and uh, so some of them jump out at you uh, straight away and uh, that you, you can tell that uh, this this is not really uh, a company for your portfolio um uh, then, then of course you can you can look at the history of the management team and uh, if the ceo or uh, if if the if some others on the management team if they've been uh, convicted for fraud or <laughs> if they've uh, you know uh, if they've run into all kinds of legal trouble uh, in previous companies that they managed uh, because they did some shady things and and think things like that generally i i like to stay away from as uh, warren buffett likes to say you can't make a good deal with a with a bad person uh, it's hard enough trying to find companies that will that'll do well uh, when when uh, there isn't a chance that uh, top management is trying to uh, enrich itself at, at your expense so why why would you go and uh, add uh, extra hurdles uh to, to yourself so I, i i generally don't like to invest in companies where um i'm i'm not uh sure that management is on my side as as a, a minority shareholder so so those are some of the things i look for that's very helpful thank you so much sure so the uh next next question comes from uma Hey, hi, Tenke. Hello. Hello. Um, good to talk to you. Um, you know, uh, I've been seeing your tweets. Do you teach mathematics? Um, well, um, some some of the concepts that I teach involve a certain amount of math, uh, but but I'm I'm not a math teacher or anything like that. But but your math skills are really amazing. You know, I'm oh, thank really you. amazed with uh, you know. Um, the kind of uh, post that you tweet the problems and all that stuff you know i'm really amazed the reason why i asked you is do you take math classes is you know if you really do you know i have my son i'm really interested to you know get some classes for him oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, i i don't do that kind of thing <laughs> it's hard to find okay. a good math teacher <laughs> and yeah i mean you know uh, your problems that you post and you know the explanation that you provide are really good and most of them you know are um, above my knowledge levels you know but um, i'm really interested so i have few questions uh, 10k for you um, um the first question is um you know you have like let's say um, i have uh, 20% of my entire asset value sitting in cash and i'm waiting to invest you know uh, and and <clears throat> make some investments and uh, you know keep that thing growing so what right. is your advice on how to basically enter um, with this 20% you know being really you know a bigger money for me um, how do i approach it so that i can um, you know mitigate the risk and uh, make sure that you know whatever that um, you know i'm purchasing is getting at um, a good price average when i take that 20% right so right 
so so it really depends on uh, what your time horizon in in this case is so um, as as charlie munger said if if you have a very long time horizon say uh, 20 years or 30 years or something like that then uh, you you can get away uh, with paying slightly more for a high quality company and over a long period of time your return Uh, will still be very high but if your time horizon is is much shorter uh, mm-hmm. then the purchase price that you pay uh, for a company matters a whole lot more uh, so right. so this is uh, the the basic principle that uh, that charlie munger stated very eloquently uh, but it's it's generally it's a generally known principle in the investing universe for a very long time uh, so what what i would do um, if if i were in your shoes if i had 20% of my portfolio in cash actually i am in your shoes i have something like 20% of my, my portfolio in cash and, as well okay and pr- probably we may be around pretty much like you know 5 years around the same age levels because you said like you came here in 2009 and i came right. in 2006 actually so maybe around that same age numbers probably 4 5 years different sure uh, d- depends on <laughs> when you know, at what uh, age we we both came to the us uh, but, but yeah uh, so, so the the thing is uh, if you have a long time horizon uh, and uh, you you want to find uh, compounders you want to find companies that have very high returns on capital that that have been able to sustain these high returns for a a reasonable amount of time in the past and Correct. which you are reasonably confident that will be able to sustain these returns going forward as well um, and not only that you want companies that uh, that can reinvest a significant portion of these earnings uh, back into their own operations also at these high rates of return so those are the kinds of companies that produce uh, great results for investors over a very long time uh, that 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 is the best case scenario but of course there are only a few of these companies and uh, you may be able to find a few of these companies but they may be trading at exorbitant valuations you may not be willing to pay those prices and so on so the next best scenario is uh, a company that that earns high uh, returns on capital but uh, that's basically just giving away all its earnings to shareholders and not mm-hmm. really uh, able to reinvest those earnings back into its own operation correct now when you buy such a company at a uh, at a right price uh, such companies can also be very good investments over a, a long period of time so um, broadly speaking if you are a long term investor these are the kinds of uh, companies that you want to find and hold on to over a Uh, long time correct that's correct but um, um, my question is more about how do we enter because we're sitting at like 20% of cash you know obviously i cannot go and enter at the, um, one point of time right so how do you basically you know uh, strategize so that you know you the average price that you get is decent and not subject to the market risk uh well if i'm happy with the price that i'm paying for a particular company Uh, i have actually uh, entered i have uh, put 20% of my portfolio into a single company on just a single day oh um, my God. and okay. i've i've been reasonably happy with <laughs> with that okay. outcome uh, so if you want you can do dollar cost averaging 
if if you think that uh, you don't want to take the risk that uh, this okay. may be the uh, absolute top or something like that but uh, when i'm happy with the price that i'm getting uh, if i think the future of the company is uh, reasonably good and uh, i'm i'm reasonably happy with uh, the price i'm getting i don't really mind putting 20% of my portfolio to work on on a on a single day into a single stock but but of course different people have different views about this and um you know you it 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 also depends on how large your portfolio is uh, and uh, how, uh, well, how 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 big the company that you're trying to buy is if if you if you're going to occupy more than say uh, 1% of the daily volume in the company or something like that if your portfolio is that large right. then you have to worry about these things but uh, you know my my portfolio is not not that large <laughs> or at least the, the companies that i'm buying are fairly big and liquid so yeah. uh, i i don't have those concerns okay yeah even my portfolio is very small i'm a very small fish so um would uh, another question is um, you know would you mind uh, giving that uh, company that uh, you said like you're pretty confident you know and you have basically have most of your uh, investment into it oh uh, so uh, i don't know about, uh, th- 30% but... of uh, about 30% of our portfolio is is in berkshire hathaway uh, so i I've, i've said this before Okay. Uh, so I I I'm willing to give that one position. <laughs> but but other than that uh, I I'm not going to tell people where the other 70% is. <laughs> sure sure. No B or A does not really matter, right? So it's uh, either of them are good. Uh Berkshire. well so there there is this very nice uh, I don't remember if it was an article or a, a tweet storm by this guy called Rational Walk. Okay. And he actually argues that if you wait a long enough period of time then the a shares will become more valuable than the b shares okay uh, simply because uh, buffett is donating uh, uh, his his a shares and uh, i think at the time of donation those a shares are converted into b shares and then donated or some something like that is going on got it got it okay and uh, and so the a shares uh, will become more valuable over time is uh, is what this guy is saying okay um, but of course uh, you know I, i i i have only b in my portfolio i, I don't have a, a shares okay thank you and and i'm 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 actually sorry uh, for too many questions i might be taking away you know no, no, uh, not at all here uh, this is the first time i'm actually uh, joining your uh, um, you know discussions the other question that i have is uh, um, you know um you know somebody else has already asked about the red flags but uh, you know uh, this question is more about what do you really look at a company you know before making a call for an investment right so you might be looking at 10 or 15 different um, you know factors but how do you drill down into what is that company that uh, you are actually investing into so what are the primary things that you actually look at it is it the profit returns or profit percentage or what is it exactly that you look at to drill down into what is uh right so this this is a little bit of a difficult question to answer uh one one because i i look at a lot of different factors now not all those factors may be relevant for all the companies that i'm looking at so uh, some some factors may be more relevant to some companies than others so i have a, a very long checklist of things that i look at um now uh, 
of course different companies are in different stages of life and uh, so the the kinds of things that i look for in a in a, say a, a mature company like like home depot or something like that is is very very different from the kinds of things i will look for um in in a in a company that is small and and growing um so uh, uh so so the, the the kinds of things that i look for are very different um in in the two cases um but but in general um the the point of any investing is uh, to buy into bets that are likely to uh, pay you more back in the future than what you invest today so if i'm reasonably confident if I, if i'm putting 100k into a company today uh, i must be reasonably confident that even if the 100k doesn't come back to me right away because the company is growing uh the the company will compound its assets and its cash flows and its earnings and so on over a long time and when they finally return money back to me in the form of dividends uh it will be far more than 100k and it will compensate me enough for the time that i spend waiting for it so so this is the broad principle and everything else you know studying uh the company in question studying its unit economics return on capital return on incremental invested capital all those things are in service of this broader question how, how confident am i that uh this condition will hold true for the company many years down the line got it yeah got it thank you sure So the the next question is from uh, Dusty. Hey, hey, thank you. Uh, hey. So uh, this is a question related to the statement uh, you just made about, uh, like, uh, the, I think basically uh, Charlie Munger said it that if you buy a good company, even at uh, expensive looking price, and uh, on a long enough time, uh, you actually come out ahead, right? So. Yes. Uh, so I am basically investing like that. I'm uh, the money I'm investing. I don't need it for the next ten, twenty years, probably. So I'm investing like that. But uh, uh, and also I'm investing in India, right? So uh, <laughs> there are companies in India which uh, basically the market agrees that these are good companies. They're very good companies, and they're right. almost like monopolistic uh, characteristics. There is nobody else second, right? So, but the problem is they're all at ninety or hundred PE or even more. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I I I don't know how to I'm analyze them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to analyze them, but I look at uh, ROC, good ROC, good free cash flow. All those things are good, but then the market may be at twenty five PE, the general market, but then the companies are at hundred PE. Right. Uh, so, do you have some uh, some rule of thumb or something like that to say that okay, uh, even if this uh, like when do they become too expensive to say okay maybe they're not good or uh, things like that, right? right so so there are a large number of factors that are specific uh, to the indian market that also you have to consider when making such investments um so i have never bought uh, a stock at a um, 100 pe or some something like that um uh, well th- there have been some some stocks that i have bought when they had no earnings so you you can maybe you can call them uh, infinite pe huh. so i i have bought some stocks like that but 
large well run companies that are making uh, enormous amounts of profit um if they don't have uh, a, a very long growth runway ahead of them then uh, buying a company at 100 pe uh, is uh, can can be a very risky thing um, so if you if you look at uh, the dot com uh, bubble uh, microsoft i believe was trading at a 75 or 80 pe at the at the time of the bubble and uh, chris bloomstrand um, has this uh, ha- he he writes these very nice letters to shareholders and those letters are uh, hundreds of pages long uh, but if you take his latest letter he explains what happened to microsoft so microsoft was trading at a very high p 70 or 75 or so- so- something like that at the time of the uh, just before the dot com crash and then after the crash microsoft remained basically dead money for many many years even though it was a fantastic company it had wonderful returns on capital its revenues were growing steadily it hit all the boxes except that initially at the time of the initial purchase the pe was very very high so the stock didn't do very well for a very long time after that so those are the risks of overpaying for even a great company but you're right if um you're reasonably confident that this company will sustain high returns on capital say for the next 50 years or something like that then yes you you can pay 100 times pe and it will still uh work out if you uh hold the company for very long and if those uh conditions those high returns on capital and uh things like that they hold true for a long time um but in charlie munger's case one of the important analysis that he did was the company is uh, will be able to reinvest capital back into itself at high rates of return now uh, in many companies in india uh, they are so capital efficient that this condition is not true so if you if you take something like uh, asian paints or some uh, some company like that in india which is paying uh, which is widely considered by the market to be a very high quality company if you look at how much it's earning and then uh, how much of that earnings can be reinvested back into the business uh, it turns out that uh, the, the reinvestment uh, is is actually uh, not not that much because uh, they are running the operations in such a high capital efficient way that uh, you just can't reinvest that much back into the company at such high rates of return that there are natural limits to how much you can reinvest so in those situations uh that, that that doesn't exactly obey the conditions set forth by charlie munger so you you have to uh be very careful when investing in such situations uh then one more thing about investing in india there's this guy called i, I think his name is vijay malik i'm not sure uh if i'm getting the name right but recently um recently meaning in the last one year or so uh he has looked at a large number of indian companies some 2500 uh, indian companies or something like that and uh, he has uh, published something like a report uh, based on his study of these 2500 companies and um, there are a lot of uh, points about the indian market that he makes uh, and if you can get that report and read it i would definitely suggest that you do that uh, because he talks about uh, foreign investment and he talks about how 
there are still a l- large number of uh, companies in the indian market that are uh, fraudulent and so uh, if if you have a company that is uh, being run in a squeaky clean way uh, the market is willing to pay a premium for that uh, and and things like that there there are so many factors that he mentions in that report uh, and i i think if you are investing in india that that that's a good place to read more about these things sure sure yeah thank you uh, okay yeah. Sure. So uh, the next question is from uh, Vinod. Uh, let Let's make this the the last question because uh, we we are already pushing an hour and forty five minutes here. So uh, let's just make this the the last question. Vinod. Thank you. Thank you for taking sure. me again. Um, uh, my question is very simple. Like, um, what do you think an active investor uh, like us? um uh, have an edge in terms of beating the index uh, because the information uh, in the world of information overload where market is trying to price in based on what um the bits and pieces of information is getting available it's available to everyone so the pricing in this, uh, the probability of uh, mispricing a particular stock is uh, very low so do you think um um this particular apart from the behavioral edge uh, that is also talked about in the psychology of investing a book right uh, psychology of uh, money right? Um, right what do you think it's a true edge what we have to beat the index or it's just a probability of uh, our attempts where we are trying to beat the index uh, right so and, yeah. and and one more question i will just right. uh, finish with sure, sure. is uh, is it uh, berkshire undervalued <laughs> okay all right <laughs> so that i will stop here yeah. all right um well so uh, the edge for an investor an active investor um, so th- there are uh, two two factors here one is is the active investor an individual investor are they investing for uh, themselves or is the active investor paying some financial professional uh, to do that investing for them they are also active investors so uh, the calculus is very different in the two cases because uh, in in the second case uh, the active investor uh, has to pay a fee and most uh, managers most professional money managers they end up underperforming the the index and so as a group uh, buffett has argued that uh, i mean any individual money manager may be very great and they may beat the index for, uh, for a long time and and so on but uh, as a group if uh, if you are going to get an average result um then uh, if you pay a fee on top of that average result you are going to get a worse than average result uh, so so this is this is the point that buffett made and uh, buffett actually made, had this bet that he made with this guy called ted sides um and uh, he, uh, there was a 10 year long bet and uh, buffett bet that uh, an s&p 500 index fund would uh, outperform Uh, a bunch of hedge funds and uh, ted took the other side of the bet and buffett actually won that bet um so when it comes to active investors who are investing for themselves not not paying an external money manager or anything like that um th- there are a few sources of edge now the nature of the market is such that uh, any kind of informational edge uh, vanishes over time so um 
you know several several decades ago there there would be people who would bet uh, they would know the price of uh, cotton or something in the us ahead of time um, uh, before everyone else in the market knew and then they would place these bets based on knowing a certain piece of information like the price of a particular commodity in two different parts of the world or some something like that uh, they would get this piece of information uh, before everyone else and then that was their edge basically and any kind of edge that is based on getting information faster than your competition that is going to uh, vanish over time uh, because technology is constantly evolving people are getting more information more and more quickly uh, new information infrastructure is constantly uh, being put out and and so on so this this kind of edge is not very sustainable uh, the, the kind of edge that that is far more sustainable is something that is based on uh, human psychology so uh, markets um, uh, at least uh, 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 well the, the the theory goes that um, markets are a significant part of the market behavior is going to be uh, shaped by human behavior and human behavior has remained uh, remarkably stable for uh, many many hundreds of years because this has been shaped by millions of years of evolution and so on so uh, if you have an edge in terms of temperament uh, and human psychology uh, basically if you are able to withstand uh, losses uh, or uh, paper losses uh, if you are able to withstand a downturn much better than your uh, than the others who are participating in the market that is a very very powerful edge uh, so that there is the saying um, who who is a great general in in battle Uh, the great general in battle is not the guy with the brightest strategy or or anything like that the great general is is a guy who can do the average thing when everything around him is going to pieces uh, so so that is the definition of a great general in in battle it's not that he's doing great things he's just doing the average things but when everything around him is collapsing he is still able to stick to his strategy and do the average thing uh, so so i think there's a lot of truth to that and uh, there is this wonderful poem called if written by rudyard kipling and uh, in in this poem uh, rudyard kipling has this sentence uh, he says if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs uh, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting yours is the earth and everything in it so i, I think th- this this is the type of edge that uh, an individual investor can have uh, in in the long run great uh, thoughts sure uh, then then the next question is is berkshire undervalued <laughs> i think there's a high probability that berkshire uh, at, at current prices is undervalued and uh, i'm i'm basing this on um two things one is uh, interest rates being where they are and the second thing is just uh, the characteristics of berkshire as a company the the kinds of cash flows it has it's it's uh, the the certainty of those cash flows over time and also the fact that buffett is spending 5 or 6 billion dollars each quarter uh, doing buying back berkshire shares and and things like that so so i think there's a there's a very good chance that berkshire is undervalued uh but of course i i may be wrong about the the stock as well uh i, I think it is undervalued 
but uh, who knows, right? <laughs> Your opinion is probably as good as mine. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the great insights and thank you for taking time. Sure, absolutely. So uh, th- thank you all very much for uh, showing up. Uh, I enjoyed this uh, discussion. And uh, if, if you enjoyed it, um, you know, tell, tell your friends and uh, let's help each other uh, become better at investing in 2022. Uh, thank you all very much and uh, see you next week. Bye-bye.